You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. Well, as we continue on in our study of the Gospel of John, here in the ninth chapter, we are smack dab in the middle of the section in John's Gospel where Jesus is opposed. Uh, Really, the book of John could be outlined in a few different ways, but the way that I have selected to follow out the course of this text or to, you know, sort of frame it within my own mind is just to help in teaching is that in the first four chapters of John's Gospel, you have Jesus presented. And then in chapter 5 through chapter 12, you have Jesus opposed, which we'll see again today. And then in chapter 13, the text takes a wonderful turn where Jesus prepares his disciples and really pours into them on that last night before he is arrested and then crucified. And then chapter 18 to the end of the Gospel of John is, you know, basically the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and follow-up ministry after the resurrection account from Jesus to his disciples. And so here in John chapter 9, we are in the middle of this section where Jesus is opposed. And what we're going to see today is that Jesus is the light of the world, and he gives as the light of the world sight to the blind. And not only does he give sight to the blind, but we're going to see that as the light of the world, when Jesus shines into a person's life, what they already are is revealed. And so we'll see that as this text carries forward Uh, Today, and by the end of this text, I think you'll see what I mean. Now, it says in chapter 9, verse 1, it says that as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And one of the first things we notice is this little note that as Jesus was walking by, he sees a man who who was actually born blind. He was blind from birth, the text says. And this was by design that Jesus selected this man for, for what he wanted to reveal in this chapter. And I think also in the next, Jesus was looking for a great illustration. And this man whom he wanted to heal and touch would be and serve as that perfect illustration because he had never been able to see before this encounter with Christ. Now, at the same time, this man served as a quandary for the disciples. You know, in those days, in that culture, they often debated trials and difficulties, physical calamities that people would find themselves in. People wanted to know and and believed that any suffering was a direct result of your personal sin. And so when someone like this man arose on the scene, they were a big question mark. You know, were they blind because of the sin of their parents? Or was there some kind of prenatal sin that they committed that caused them to be born blind? Now, The theological answer that Jesus could have given is simply to say, well, no, neither he 
nor his parents were the cause of this blindness directly, but there is sin in the world and universe as a result of the original sin committed by Adam when he ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when sin and death entered into the world, then you have things like blindness and sickness and trials and difficulties uh, that are not necessarily a results of our specific sin, but are the results of sin in general. And I found that this, you know, cause and, and effect view of God is all too common even today. You know, whether it's amongst maybe some kind of popular pastor or, you know, outspoken theologian who, uh, whenever there's a natural disaster, they feel some kind of need to uh, speak to the uh, national media and declare that the reason that we experience this hurricane or earthquake uh, or tsunami or fill in the blank, the reason that we experienced this is because of this particular sin that we've been committing as a nation or that that region has been committing. And it is possible that that is true. But it's also possible that that is not true and only God knows. I mean, we can say with certainty that there are certain consequences to our actions that are a direct result of our sin. A sexually transmitted disease can be something a person acquires through sin. All right. But, but I think that this cause and effect view of God is all too common just in our regular everyday lives as Christians. You know, you lose a job, you get a flat tire, someone in your family dies, and you think that it must be because you have done something wrong. And if you were doing everything right in your Christian life and experience, you would never have any kind of trial or difficulty, such as blindness or disease, uh, but this is not the biblical case. But all of that said, Jesus really didn't focus on that theological answer. Instead, as the light of the world, he begins to illuminate our first character in the text, and it's God himself. When he says in verse 3 that it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, what Jesus is saying here is obvious on a micro level. You know, on the micro level, this man, here he is. He has blindness. Jesus is going to heal him of his blindness. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you know, nobody sinned here. But now that I've found this man, God is going to be glorified. The works of God are going to be revealed in and through this man's life as I touch him and as I heal him. You know, it would not have been impressive at all for Jesus to look at a man who could already see and say, continue to see. There's no miracle in that. But to take a man who cannot see and has been born blind and to heal him, uh, everyone would see the power of Christ in and through this man's life. But there's, of course, a much bigger picture the macro picture of this man's life, simply that Jesus Christ, he illuminates the works of God. He says that the works of God might be displayed in him. And the reason that Jesus can display the works of God through this man's life is because Jesus 
finds this man's personal disaster and solves the problem. And, of course, this is a picture, and, and this reveals then God. But, of course, this is a picture of the gospel itself, that Jesus stepped into the world, found our disaster, our sin, that we were under wrath, that we were slaves of sin and death, went to the cross in order to relieve us of that disaster, take away our sin, take away death, and remove the wrath of God from us. And in doing that, Jesus, as the light of the world, is revealing the works of God. In other words, Jesus, through the gospel, reveals who God is. I mean, when you think about it, it's not that on the cross, when Jesus died, God had finally decided to be loving. No, God was always loving, and God will always be loving. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. However, if man didn't know it at the cross, now if man didn't know it before the cross, now, uh, because of the cross, we know of the wonderful love of God. And so Jesus is saying, as the light of the world, I'm going to reveal God. And, you know, in one sense, we could just simply say that Jesus loves to illuminate God through our own personal brokenness, just like this man and just like the world in its fallenness and brokenness and our lives personally uh, the Lord loves to find our areas of weakness, like this man's blindness, and he loves to demonstrate the power of God working through our lives. Uh, like in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, when Paul caught a vision of eternity, he saw heaven, he saw the heavenly realm, and he said, look, it wouldn't be right for me to even attempt to write down the things that I saw and the things that I heard. It would be unlawful for a man to try to utter these things. He said, but when I, you know, came to and was back in my normal state, uh, God gave me a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Some kind of physical thing that Paul received. And uh, we debate on what it was, you know, was it some kind of eye malady, some other sickness? Uh, we don't really know for, for certain, but we do know that Paul called it a thorn in the flesh. And he said, I prayed three times that God would remove this thorn in the flesh from me. But then the Lord spoke to me and said, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And the Lord just said, Listen, my grace is good enough for you, and through your weakness, my power will be displayed. And the Lord loves to do this. And that's why Paul then responded and said, Okay, then fine, I will boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. I'll be content in my weaknesses and with insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I, for one, as a pastor and as a man, I'm just so thankful that the Lord finds our weaknesses and is willing to work through our weaknesses and is willing to, you know, use our lives even in the midst of weakness. Because it's then that his power is seen and shown. And so Jesus as the light of the world. Uh, but then he goes on in verse 4, back in John 9, and he says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. 
As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so this is a slightly difficult little phrase for us to understand from Jesus. He looks at his disciples and, you know, he says, hey, we, we have to, well, it is day, work the works of him who sent me. You know, night is coming, he says, when no one can do any work. And then he says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So the first part of this is obvious. You know, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. It must refer to the healing of this blind man in one sense. It's daytime. Jesus is there. He's present. This man is blind and Jesus has the power to heal him. But then it sounds like he's saying, you know, a day is coming. It's going to be night. No one can do any work then. And, and well, I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Now, it's not that Jesus is saying, once I've ascended to the right hand of the Father, I am no longer the light of the world. He is definitely still the light of the world even today. However, he's the light of the world in a different sense than he was back then. Back then, he was personally present, living life as the light of the world, for the people that would hear him speak and teach and walk and talk. And of course now, he speaks and teaches and walks and talks through his people. And so he is the light of the world now in a different sense because he's producing that light through his church, through his bride, through his people. And so really, in looking at this, what we could say is, you know, Jesus took great responsibility to get the work that he was called to do, done, while it was still his day. You know, still his daylight. However, he would then encourage all of us and say, listen, a night is coming for every single one of you. None of you are going to live forever. So, in response, make sure that you do all of the works that God has called you to do while it is still And I think it just speaks to us of, you know, the reality that we have a limited amount of time here to, to work and to serve the Lord. And so we need to watch and be ready and be busy about our Father's business. Now, having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So what you see at this point is that Jesus sends this man away for healing. This man has never seen Jesus. He has only heard his voice. So he goes and he washes this mud off. And uh, so, you know, obviously the spitting on the ground and the making of mud, this is strategic from Jesus, stimulating the man's faith, but also making sure that this man would be healed without being able to visually identify Jesus. Now the neighbors, verse 8, and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to them, then how were your eyes open? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. In other words, he he hadn't seen Jesus. He doesn't, doesn't know what Jesus looks like. But second little section here that we have is this interaction between the man and the neighbors. And I don't want to belabor it longer than it needs to be. 
uh, focused on. Uh, but just for a moment, think about this. Here you have these people, and because Jesus has entered into the scene as the light of the world, they then respond with, many of them, disbelief. The Jews later will respond, the religious leaders, with unbelief, which is sort of a hardness of heart, but this is disbelief, just sort of a, we can't believe that this is, is actually true. He looks like the man that was blind. He talks like the man who was blind, but this man can clearly see there's no way that it's the same man. None of us have ever discovered a cure for blindness. How could it even be the same man? And I just wanted to say that because I think as the light of the world, Jesus often reveals uh, an element of disbelief inside of human hearts. I mean, this was a, an unusual miracle. It was hard for them to grasp. And I think if they just sat back and said, statistically speaking, what are the odds that this would take place? All of them would say, the statistics say, there is no chance. And so, I think a lot of times the Lord, as He works in our lives, He, as the light of the world, shines into our hearts, into those pockets of disbelief. You know, where we're shocked by His ability, skeptical about His ability. You know, whether it's the possibility of an addiction being overcome, perhaps a, a, an unmarried woman who says, you know, now I think I'd like to be married. And she begins looking around and saying to herself, there are no good men who are even alive on the planet. You know, or godly leadership. You know, saying to ourselves, is there even such a thing anymore? It seems everything is corrupt and all of that. And so, you know, we there may be different things that we would say, I can't believe God for that. But the light of the world, he wants to expose that heart of ours. And he wants us to believe and to trust in the ability of the Lord. Now, after responding, it says in verse 13 that they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. You know, they always needed the Pharisees to weigh in on these different things that would happen in their little communities. And now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And so, obviously, Jesus would wait for a Sabbath day. It was kind of his way of sparking a debate with these religious leaders. So the Pharisees again asked him, how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But, but others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. So they go through this thing, you know, where first of all, John recounts it. Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. And in their way of thinking, you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. You couldn't sort of work the soil on the Sabbath, which Jesus had done through creating the mud. And you couldn't anoint eyes medicinally on the Sabbath. And so potentially Jesus has broken three of their rules, not the Sabbath, but their rules about the Sabbath. And uh, some of them say, there's no chance he's from God. He broke our little rules. But then others say, well, you know, he must be from God because he worked this miracle and he healed people, which is on the right track, but is even still, you know, faulty in its logic and thinking. God himself had told the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 13, he says, listen, if a, 
if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, someone comes by working signs and wonders, but they begin to teach you things contrary to my word, then you need to stone that person to death. They, they must immediately die. And Jesus himself said that a day is coming where people would say, we cast out demons in your name. We prophesied in your name. We did many mighty works in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And even the Antichrist himself, when he comes in the future, much like Pharaoh's magicians in the past, will be able to work many false signs and wonders. So a miracle isn't even necessarily proof. But when you see a miracle followed by good doctrine and teaching, well then, uh, that honors God, well then, You've got something. So the Jews, verse 18, did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them. So now there's this little trial that takes place with this man's parents of all people. They say, is this your son? They say, who you say was born blind. How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. They don't want to answer this question themselves directly. And here's why. Verse 22. It says, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age ask him. And so the light of the world shows up. He reveals God. He reveals these neighbors. He reveals the Jews and their unbelief inside of their hearts. They're unable, unwilling, I should say, to believe. There's a hardness of heart creeping inside of them. And, uh, and, and then now they interview the parents of this man and their fear is now uh, exposed. In, in the day that John actually wrote the ninth chapter of John, the synagogues were decidedly anti-Christian. I mean, in John's day, when he wrote this, the 12th benediction that they would recite three times daily said, for the renegades, let there be no hope and may the arrogant kingdom soon be rooted out in our days and the Nazarenes, these are Christians, and the heretics perish as in a moment and be rooted out from the book of life and with the righteous may they not be inscribed. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who humblest the arrogant. I mean, so if you're a Christian and you went to the synagogue as a Jew, you'd hear that statement and you'd be ashamed to even be there. And so even though they weren't quoting that benediction at the time that John 9 actually occurred, but it was happening at the time John wrote John 9, but at the time that he that it actually occurred, that kind of atmosphere wasn't yet in the synagogue, but there was this fear inside of their hearts. And time prohibits me from talking about this too much, but, you know, I think there needs to be a, a readiness from God's people, you know, of understanding that, listen, being ostracized from cultural or social parts of our society is definitely a possibility as a Christian. And that's what the synagogue was for these parents. It was the cultural, social epicenter. And, uh, you know, we shouldn't be ostracized because we're charming snakes or, you know, doing strange things on Christian television. But, 
when we stand for the Lord and, and his word, there will be times where the culture looks down its nose upon us, and we should not fear that. Now we go on in the text and it says, So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. And uh, he answered and said, Whether he's a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Now we love the response of this man. He just says, Listen, there's not much that I do know, but I do know that I used to be blind and now I see. I'm not going to weigh in on whether he's a sinner or not. But now, just as much as Jesus selected this man because he'd been born blind, I think he also uh, selected this man because he was a little feisty. It says in verse 26 that they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. For we know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they cast him out. And so this man argues with these religious leaders. Uh, they're not going to consider this man or his logic. But he just fires back and says, Listen, you, you guys are being ridiculous. You're, you're rejecting him, but he's done this wonderful thing. Now, he was cast out, it says at the end of verse 34. The very thing his parents feared would happen to them happened to their son. But I want you to see this in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. He may have lost a little bit of his cultural, social comfort zone in losing the synagogue, but he gained Jesus Christ. Jesus said to him in verse 39, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And so obviously Jesus is using this man's physical blindness and subsequent healing as a physical allegory or parable of the spiritual healing that he offers. And those that he comes to in this world who profess to be able to see, they become blind. But those who know that they are blind and in need, they receive their sight. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.